Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital to the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. Good morning, everyone. Uh, we first looked at the forecast for this weekend. We were not sure if we were going to be able to make it, um, but thank God the weatherman is almost never right. Um, but in God's providence, here we are, joined together on the Lord's day that He has risen. And we remember, I think about this, we take a, a day every Sunday to cut together as much as we can to join to worship our Lord. A day to set aside that is the Lord's day that he rose from the grave, that we remember that we have new life in him. It's a wonderful celebration and tradition or routine that we do over and over again. It's liturgical and it teaches us that it's important as we set aside this first day to be praising the Lord, teaching of our Lord, encouraging one another in the scriptures, it means that it means something for us, that God has actually done something on our behalf. So we're thankful to be gathering on the Lord's Day. And we're grateful for those that could come this morning, but of course there's also others that um, are still at home, um, not here in our parking lot. And we look forward to the day that you will be joined with us, hopefully together sooner than later, uh, and we'll enjoy that time. We miss you very much if you're at home this morning. Let's go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Um, we are just finishing up the chapter today. Our passage will be in verses 19 through 22. Um, but what we're going to do is we're going to read the whole thing from verse 11 to 22 because it's one big idea that we've got to follow all the way through. He kind of closes out his argument today. Uh, then uh, I'll go ahead and read this and we'll pray uh, and we'll get going. This is God's word. Verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, Remember that you were at the time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built in the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, we, we gather together today saying together and singing to you, holy, 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 hallowed be your name. We worship you, the eternal God who is unlike any other. Lord, you have heard our prayer and you have not rejected us. Our actions have betrayed our own words this week. 
We've been unfaithful. We've been lazy. We've been proud. We've been angry. We've lusted after the things of this world, and we've failed to look to you for true joy. But Lord, we are confident that you will not remove your steadfast love from us in Jesus. We confess our sin against you and ask for forgiveness and restoration. Our only hope is in Christ alone. Our hope is in him, and this hope we know will not disappoint. So God, teach us to understand your ways and to live today as kingdom citizens, as members of the household of God, and as those who are being built together into a dwelling place for God. What immense privilege, Lord. Would you make us fit for it? Lord, you, would you graciously show us the truth of your word as we open it now, and may we obey it with happy hearts. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. I don't know how many of you were actually here at this time, but do you remember back to the Joshua Sermon series where we worked through the book of Joshua? In chapter 9, we came across a group called the Gibeonites. If you remember, this was the, uh, the great charade that they put on, and they tricked Israel into thinking that they were from a far-off country. If you remember this, they were a conniving, opportunistic people who realized, by God's grace, I'll say, that the God of Israel was real and that they were about to be annihilated by Israel and rolled through as they were rolling through Canaan. They were not Jews. They were not Israelites. But through this event, and through the testimony of we even read in Nehemiah, we learn that they were made into woodcutters and water gatherers for the altar of the Lord. They enjoyed the grace and mercy of God as he allowed them to survive and worship him in this way. But even hundreds of years later, they were still known as the Gibeonites. They were still known as this. Even though they had received mercy, the people had followed Yahweh's word and obeyed, they still made, though, a distinction for these people. They're still called the people of Gibeah. They still labeled them for what they were, Gentile, Gibeonite, proselytes to the Israelite God. Now, blood seems to run a lot deeper than water, right? A lot deeper than words, a lot deeper than conventions. I mean, you can shed your old ways, right? But your blood will always remain the same. Who you really are, your true blue. These things are just inside of you and, they, and they, you can't change in one sense. I mean, you've heard the statement probably expound a different way, but it's been said that you can take a man out of the mountains, but you'll never take the mountains out of a man. We track genealogies and we understand it's important to know kind of your history and where you're from and, you know, we even count how much percentage Native American we are. We're trying to figure all those pieces out because they matter to us and we want to make sure we understand these distinctions as best we can. There's something inside of us, if we're all really honest, where we want to know where we belong, where we're supposed to be, who we are. Like, what, what makes us belong in a certain spot versus another? We want to fit somewhere. We want to be someone. And this is why it's so disconcerting for someone who doesn't know their own history, doesn't know their family history, and they're constantly wondering, where am I from? What am I supposed to belong to? They seem like they don't have a tribe. They seem like they don't belong anywhere. It's hard for us to see it, but these earthly distinctions that I'm talking about maybe nationalities, maybe different maybe gender, maybe different parts of who God has made us to be, there are certainly earthly distinctions, and they are real. 
but they are not ultimate. Now track with me here. These things make us very different from one another. But as Christians, as ones who are in Christ, these distinctions, these are, things are actually details and decorations, ultimately. Again, what I mean here, these things that might point to us and say, this person is different than that person, and they look different than them, and those have different blood than that one, and these are so different in all these ways, are rather like flavor and color and texture in a mosaic in the kingdom of God. We should not ever want to flatten all the distinctions as they don't matter. Again, they're God-given things, but they are not our true and ultimate identity. The things that we might point out, again, as different, really are texture and showing us something wonderful about who God is. What I'm trying to get at here is that the gospel doesn't flatten us all out. We still have many differences between one another. But in Christ, we have found our truest identity. We have found what we were truly made to be, where we belong, what we were always meant to do. Our earthly tribe does not ultimately define us, but rather our status in the kingdom of God. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, at the beginning of this chapter, we learned that we were dead and walked in these dead actions, if you remember that, but that God had made us alive together with Christ and that we now walk in good works. And then in verses 11 through 18, we learned that we were separated from Christ. We were far off, but that in Christ we are brought near. And in Christ, we find out that we have peace, not only with him, but with the rest of his people. These are glorious truths, but Paul is not finished. We come to verse 19 through 22, and we realize that he wants us to understand this peace a little bit more. And I'll give you a clue. We aren't left to cut wood and gather water for eternity. We won't always be known as the Gibeonites, the conniving ones that just slipped in somehow who were tolerated by Israel. A quick note for the Bible reader and interpreter. When, you, when you're reading this passage, Paul is going to use several metaphors over and over again. And you know this. When you're reading through the scriptures, something that's like this, or this is as this or that. We need to understand that he's going to use several metas, metaphors here to describe our new identity. And it's so much so that by the end, we're like trying to make sure we can figure out what his pathway has been and how all these metaphors work together, right? We're trying to make sure we track with him. And it's, it's a good thing to try to keep them all straight. But I'd encourage you as a reader and as an interpreter of the Bible not to be too stringent on all your metaphors working together perfectly. Remember, they're a, a way to speak about something. Usually the author is trying to get across one major idea. If you try to make them all fit together, you'll be frustrated and you're going to see that it doesn't really work that way. So I'd be, again, remember that the metaphors play a simple role, usually to explain one aspect of what Paul is doing, and not necessarily trying to link them all together in one big allegory that we can put everything together. So I encourage you to listen to what he says. Do your best to understand it and walk with him as he continues on. So let's begin. Look at verse 19. Paul says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. He tells us that our identity as Gentile Christians has actually changed. Paul is now getting to these verses and he's giving us his conclusion in verse 19, all based upon the work of Jesus Christ. And you know this already, but in case you forgot just to scan back those verses before, 
you'll see that all these benefits come out of the finished work of Jesus. Specifically, if you just look at verse 13, you're going to see it's all born out of that. He says, now in Christ Jesus, you have been brought near. This is Christ who's done this. So in Jesus Christ, the true son of Abraham, a Jew of all Jews, we are no longer Gentile dogs, far off, far away from God's presence and help. I'm going to use this term. In Christ, we are not strangers from God's ways. In Christ, we are not foreigners to his mercy or to his people. In Christ, we are brought near. In Christ, we have hope. In Christ, we have the covenants of promise. In Christ, we are made fellow citizens with the saints. Now, fellow citizens, of what country are we talking about here? Like maybe of the nation Canaan, where are we talking about? Of Israel? No. Let's think a little differently than a country. Citizenship, rather more of a kingdom. Something that's bigger than this. Let's talk about, um, you know, and you know where this is exactly where this is going. Jesus made us fellow citizens together in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, just, just in verse 6 alone, we, we learn that we have been seated together with Christ in the heavenly places, in his realm, in his dimension, in his kingdom. Listen to Philippians 3.20. Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Or in Galatians 4.26, Paul speaks about the Jerusalem that is above, this being our true country. Our citizenship with those who love and trust Jesus Christ alone. Our citizenship is with other saints, believing holy ones. Those that love Christ, that understand that his kingdom is worth sacrificing anything here that we would think is valuable. It is not tied to geopolitical entities around us. It's as those countries and governments are of any importance and lasting, but rather to a lasting eternal kingdom, to a dimension, if you consider this, that we cannot see right now with our eyes, but rather we behold and love by faith, understanding that he is at work in the world. We're not strangers to this kingdom or visitors or foreigners, but Paul tells us that we are fellow citizens of the kingdom of God. Now this is amazing here because he's telling us that as we are this, we are joined with the saints who have trusted the promises of God. But there's more than that even. He doesn't just end with this as an analogy. He goes on, he says, members of the household of God. He turns from a political metaphor, citizenship, to a family metaphor. Now he's talking and describing our relationship to God and his people in this household of God. We aren't just, again, attending visitors in the family or hired hands for a short time period. We are made permanent members of God's household. We are under the care and protection and refuge of a master who will provide for us. Now the wording here, we talk about like a member of this household. It could be any sort of member, but we know something different. Already we saw in verse 18 that we have access to the who? Father. That we are made part of the family as children. Of course, this is a warm, familial uh, sound word here, one of care and love and closeness. We are a part of his household, his family, the household of God. 
So the description is wonderful. I mean, if you think about it, it puts a smile on your face that now you are cared for and loved and brought into this household of love and power, knowing that we are at peace with our Jewish brothers in Christ and that we are permanent citizens and family members in God's kingdom and household. But, I mean, come on, Paul. I mean, these are, these are we understand that sounds so cool. Flower language, like this is amazing. And yet we're struggling as Gentiles here against the Jews. I'm putting them back into this day in our time period as well. We, we don't see quite what you're talking about here. What does it mean for us to actually be part of your household? What does it mean to be part of a fellow citizen in your kingdom? Is this some sort of, like think about this, is this some kind of spiritual or mystical thing where almost like a Gnostic, like we just, we can't see it all now, but we just believe that something out there is going to change about this. And we just kind of adhere to that thought process. In reality, we can, you know, we can affirm and look forward until we die. That's going to be better in that day, but we're not really sure. Is that what this is about? Like that this is some sort of thing that we have no connection to right now at all? As though it's only spiritual? Well, it's certainly spiritual in one sense. And we know that Paul is talking about this, but He's talking in this sense not only about some far-off place that is between the clouds. He is talking about being built up as a house of God. He is talking about the body. He is talking about creating the one new man. He's talking about the saints. He's talking about the church, all of those that believe the promise of God and trust him completely. All those who trust in Jesus Christ, the word made flesh. He's just told us in verse 15 that he is creating himself one new man, reconciling us both to God in one body. So that, therefore, in real time, in real space, where we're at here, Paul is saying that Christ is in the process of building his church. And this is exactly what he's writing in this letter to tell them. He's teaching and instructing these believers the truth that who they are is not just some human institution. They need to know this. I mean, we need to know this. Paul is describing our identity, that we do not get confused with what we see and what we feel and what we want around us. Because we've talked about this before. All those natural things that we can see and feel and hear, and everyone else seems to be against the way that the Bible speaks, all those things that we can, un we can take in with our natural eyes will drive us away from the truth of God's revealed word. It will continually work against his kingdom. We know this also because of Satan's constant action to fight against the kingdom of heaven. This is not new, but therefore when we, when we get to verse 20, we shouldn't be surprised that he's not talking only in a, a personal only way, not just talking to Chris Lowndes. He is looking at the whole. Oh, that's true. He's probably more importantly talking to the corporate church. Again, whatever church we're going to get this letter at, if at Ephesus and other places throughout Asia Minor, when they receive this, they understand he's talking about them as a body. I'll pick up in verse 19, but I want us to listen to verse 20 when we get there. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. What does he mean here? I mean, I thought that the church was built on Christ, right? I mean, like he's, 
he's divine. And isn't it really supposed to end up that way, that Jesus Christ is the cornerstone, like the most important foundational piece? I mean, these are right questions for us to ask. What does he mean then if he's saying that we are the foundation is the apostles and prophets? What does he mean when he points to them as the foundation? He says that membership in the household of God, citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Briefly, um, I'll just admit, this was confusing to me at first because I thought I knew exactly what he was talking about. I assumed some things right away as I read it in English. I thought he was talking about the 12 disciples, and then he's talking about the, the Old Testament prophets that were writing in the Old Testament. But then as I started studying, uh, I found that there's a few problems with this. The first and most important problem is the word order. Which ones came first? The apostles? If we're talking about Old Testament prophets? No. The Old Testament prophets and chronologically would have come first. So this is the first problem. Why would he set it up this way? Also, his use of word prophets in this book, he never is referring. He does it twice in 3, 4, and 5, and then in 4, 11. I'll read those in a minute. But neither of those are referring to the Old Testament prophets. So what are you talking about here? He uses the word prophet in 3, 4, and 5 like this. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. Think about how he uses the word prophets there. Ephesians 4.11, Paul says that Christ, after his ascension, gave gifts. He says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. So this phrase here seems to be about something different than the Old Testament prophets, and maybe it's a little different than I thought in the first place. I was thinking about the offices or the positions of a prophet. That's what, that's what I'm naturally thinking about. But this is not quite right. Uh, maybe I was thinking about the New Testament apostles and the Old Testament prophets, but I think he's getting at something a little bit more important here, at least in light of Jesus Christ being revealed. At least we know this, that he's not necessarily talking about Old Testament prophets, but New Testament prophets. Now, we use that word a little bit differently when we refer to them, but understanding that these men were coming prophesying the revelation of Jesus Christ. We're actually learning from him and then revealing the word of God. He says that membership in the household of God, citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now, we also know that Paul isn't saying that our salvation status, right, or our, uh, as the new man, is based on these mere humans, the ones that were not divine, as though somehow we could stand on their hearts, soul, and mind, and we were in them somehow, that they were our foundation. I mean, that just wouldn't make any sense to any of our theology about these men. So what help would Peter or Matthew or John or any of the disciples be to my salvation and membership in the household of God? I mean, let's just be honest. They were just sinners like you and me. They can't do anything about my condemned status before God. Furthermore, we know that it's Jesus who is our true foundation. And that's why he puts us here, the chief cornerstone. So it can't be that these individuals were really the foundation that we stood on. Right. So if he isn't talking about specific individuals, these offices of specific apostles and specific prophets that we all know, then what exactly is he referring to here? For a moment, consider what an apostle did. Consider what a prophet did. 
What was their function? What was their role? What was their duty or their action? Although they were certainly leaders, and we all think of them this way, that was not their main function. The apostles were entrusted with the message or the revelation of Jesus Christ. They were tasked to teach his disciples to observe everything that Jesus had commanded. That's the end of Matthew 28. The Christian prophets were preachers of the truth of the gospel and all that it meant for a new humanity, that new man, the church. They received the word of God. They were conduits for Christian instruction. In other words, understanding God's plan because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. The Christian prophets were preachers of the truth and the gospel. And it was from this group, the apostles and prophets, that the church got its authoritative teaching, all of its revelation of the gospel of Jesus. Now, a lot of us, if we're, we don't really want to admit this, but we kind of think that the Bible came down from heaven leather-bound with one of those ribbons through it, and that's kind of the way we got it. That is not exactly right. In fact, it's not even close. But what we do know over and over again through textual criticism, looking through all these things, understand these are real people, real people that we trust that not only the message is true, but real historical people who wrote, who had personalities, who had met, in most cases, Jesus Christ, preaching and teaching his word, understanding who he was. It was this group that was given the revelation of the gospel of Jesus. When Paul says that we are being built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, he is saying that the work of these New Testament teachers, those who taught the truth of Jesus Nazareth was the Messiah, he's saying that these teachings are foundational to our understanding the purposes of God in regards to the new man, the church. He is pointing to the instruction that they received from Jesus that they received by the Holy Spirit's power, that they would now tell us the truth about who Jesus was. In short, our membership in God's people is founded on the new revelation that we find, I'm not talking about today, the new revelation of Jesus Christ, the regular teaching of the apostles and prophets. This means that we, uh, you know, we have strings attached to our religious practices, now, no one likes to hear that, but let me, let me explain. Our lives are guided by principles and instruction. It is the instruction of the inspired word of God, the Bible. We're talking about that the New Testament specifically understands who Jesus Christ is as a historical person. They, most of them met him, heard from him, and were able now to give us the truth about who he was. And so the apostles and prophets are giving us this instruction through the Bible. We don't experience prophecy today. There's no new word from God about Jesus that is not found in the scriptures. We are a people that are tethered to a book, our book, well, actually his book, the scriptures, the Bible. We are people of the word and dwelt by the Holy Spirit following the teachings of the apostles and prophets. Our confidence and practice and teaching and growth rests not on our own ideas about who God is, but rather they find themselves given understanding and life in the revealed word of God, particularly interpreted by the apostles and prophets. Now, ontologically, though, the apostles and prophets are not our foundation. Now, I used a big word there. I saw everyone be like, oh, what is he saying? 
our being, what actually is true. Like, are we in the apostles and prophets? No. Does our being rest on them? No. That's why he continues on here. They have no ability to hold the church together. They have no ability to give us life or make peace or reconcile us to God. But Christ does. Paul says, referring back here to Isaiah 28, 16, that Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone, our foundation and our direction, the one in whom we are actually built on, ontologically. Like him, he's the actual one. He's the one that our beings are in. Listen to Isaiah for a moment. Isaiah 28, 16 says this, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am the one who has laid as a foundation in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of a sure foundation. The teachings and instructions of the apostles and prophets are absolutely foundational. We are so blessed to have them. But what they're teaching us in these instructional, foundational pieces is that Jesus is the true, sure foundation. That Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth is the Messiah. He is the precious cornerstone. Paul is saying, as the, whole, the uh, old hymn says, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ, her Lord. Again, though, this structure, this church, this household of God is not a human institution. It's not something that you and I get our ideas together about and say, this is what we should do for God for church. It is not our thoughts on what worship should look like for this God. This is his design and his direction. We are not the church assembled around our ideas of religion, but a holy, heavenly body created by Christ growing into maturity by the Spirit for a dwelling place of God. Listen to what he says in the next two verses, in 21 and 22. In whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Did you, did you notice the central role of Jesus in this? Go, go ahead and look back at it. At the beginning of verse 21, he says, In whom... He's talking to Jesus. He's talking about Jesus Christ, the chief cornerstone. At the end of verse 21, in the Lord. At the beginning of verse 22, in him. Again, referring to Christ. Jesus is the cornerstone, the one in whom every part of the church relates and functions. Paul says that in Jesus, the whole structure, meaning the whole church, past, present, and future, the whole structure being joined together, think about what he's just talked about, being joined together all that have put their faith in Christ, Jews and Gentiles alike, being joined together, these people, this whole structure, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Wow. I mean, he's just gone from a political metaphor, right? We are fellow citizens of the saints, to a, um, a family metaphor that we are members of the household of God. <laughs> now he's switching over to a building metaphor. The structure grows into a holy temple. We are becoming a dwelling place for God. We are gradually returning to the type of relationship that we used to know long back in Eden, when God dwelt with Adam and Eve, man, where God's dwelling place was with him in fellowship. Now, we will see in Revelation 21.3 that one day, God will ultimately, perfectly, eternally dwell with his people. 
We are experiencing, though, the process in Jesus Christ that is working, that he is growing this thing called the Holy Temple. And the truth that we are the temple of God. We are learning yet another side of our identity. But this one is a closeness to the Trinity. Did you notice that? He puts all three in there together. Listen, verse 22. In him, that's Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God, Father, by the Spirit. Jesus, the Spirit, God, the Father. We are not merely physical beings that house thoughts and emotions and, and flesh and ideas and potential actions. We are spiritual beings able to be known and to know our maker, our creator, God himself. In the church, the true people of God, the new man, there is an intersection. Think about this for a minute. There's an intersection between dimensions, between the kingdom of earth that we know of, this age that we can see and understand, and between the dimension of the heavenly places, understanding the kingdom of God, where God works and dwells and is revealed to the world. It is here where we have fellowship with our maker, where we know God through Jesus Christ. This can only happen in Christ. By the grace that we receive in him, we understand communion with him and understand the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, this can only happen by the Holy Spirit working, like we saw in the end of verse 22. The growing happens in the Lord. Being built together in a dwelling place for God can only happen by the power and work of the Holy Spirit, not by us willing ourselves to do so. Remember, we are dead in and of ourselves. But I also want to see that not only this holy temple idea, but I want to see the, the, the idea here, the present tense verb. Again, that's nerdy stuff, but follow me for a minute. I want to notice that this process is not yet complete. I have good news. This is not as good as it gets. There will be one day when Jesus Christ will come back and we will make all things right. We saw this in Ephesians 1, 9, and 10. There will be one day, it will be complete unification where he'll crush every enemy and he'll unite all things in heaven and on earth in Jesus Christ. I want us to see, though, this is a process that we are involved in. We, the people of God, grow into a holy temple. I think this is worth our time to stop off just for a minute and talk about this. The fact that this is a work in progress teaches us something very important about our place in history and therefore our inherited joyful task of evangelism. It is not complete yet. Amongst us right now, I know at the very least there are children who do not know Jesus Christ, have not trusted, who do not love him with their whole hearts. We know that to be true from Romans 5. They were born in sin. We understand that. Guys, this is part of our joyful duty to proclaim Jesus Christ as he builds his church. We're in one little parking lot here. There's a rec center over there. There's a school over there. There's literally cars behind us traveling by full of people who do know and do not know who Jesus Christ is. That means the task is not complete. That means he is still building. There will be one day where it is too late. But for now, we are set about the task that we found out at the end of Jesus' ministry when he tells the disciples, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them to observe all the different things that I've commanded you. Guys, I want to step off here because it's really important to realize that we're not done yet. 
Let us put our hand joyfully to the plow of proclaiming Jesus Christ to our neighbors. For that matter, what about the Riyal Malayu people? What do you think Jared and Sharon are doing as they sit here waiting to get back, as Jonathan and Sarah wait to, to engage again, as they pray that God would break open this people group, that they would know Jesus Christ? Millions of people who do not know what Jesus Christ is, rather that he's a person. I want to call us to this truth, that we are still in the process of watching Christ build and join together and grow his church. We were once strangers. Think about this. Think, think about your own journey. I don't know what exactly it was. That means that we were once, in a sense, we're talking about temple, dwelling place, for a minute. I know this is just, I'm making my own analogy here. We were like raw material, right? We weren't used in a building yet. We were like the raw material, unusable, destined for anonymity, actually probably destruction. But God made us alive. He brought us near. And what he does then is to continue the metaphor, he carefully placed us as an important part of his dwelling place, an important part of his temple. In a sense, we must continue to call then the other raw materials who don't know they're supposed to be part of the temple. We know that we don't just automatically flip a switch and one day we're a Christian. It comes by the hearing of the gospel preached. And that doesn't mean me up here always preaching the gospel. That means you in your homes and your workplaces, in your families. Perhaps it's an email to someone who needs to hear the gospel. How different would it be if we understood that we are the light of Jesus Christ to the world, calling the other pieces, the other bricks, the other parts of the structure to be a part of this temple. I don't think we ought to let this pass over us. We are active participants in the gospel call to see many who would come to be built into his temple come. So we, Jew and Gentile, are being built together as a holy temple, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. In Isaiah 2, 1 through 5, and Isaiah 66, 18 through 20, we're not surprised here, but they didn't know exactly what was going to happen. We're not, we're not surprised to hear that Isaiah prophesies about the city of God, the holy temple, that it would be a place not only for Jews, but of the nations, that they would flow to it. We know that this passage helps us understand who we are. Gentiles? Yes. Jews? Maybe yes. But that's, not, that's, that's nothing compared to our truest identity in Jesus Christ as the temple of the living God. There's something inside of us that loves to belong. We want a tribe. We want to be a part of a certain group. We want to fit somewhere. We want to be someone. I have great news. We are made to be part of his uh, family, his household. We are members in Christ Jesus. We are members of the household of God. We may not have a, a tribe here on earth or a certain group that adopts us as their own. Our true identity, though, is in Christ. It is in him that we belong. And as an extension of that, because I can't, I can't reach my arms across the whole world, this is a manifestation right here of the kingdom of Christ, understanding that what's going on here is his body. The people that are truly regenerate, who love Jesus Christ, who are made alive, who through faith know Jesus Christ, that we are a part of the growing temple that he is making. Our political alliance and allegiance is not here. 
but it's to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. Our family ties, these membership ties, are not by blood, but by the Spirit who makes us one of another in the household of God. Our function, our our duty, and our joy is to be near this God, to become his dwelling place, his temple. If we look back at this whole thing, in verse 12, we started out without Christ. We were separated from him. But in verse 13, Paul says that now we are in Christ and we are brought near. We're reconciled alongside of our Jewish brothers and sisters to God. We now have access to the Father by the Spirit. That's verse 18. But we really, what really knocks our socks off is the fact that it changes things here and now and not only in the end times. We're not just observers. We're not just second-tier citizens, people you know, kind of on the outside of the community of God. But rather, we are full-blown kingdom citizens and members of God's household. We belong. We are presently being built into a dwelling place for God. Our earthly tribe may not define us as much as we might try to make it so, but our status in the kingdom of God does. Let's pray together. Well, Lord God, we thank you for Jesus Christ, the one who has brought us near, one who cares so deeply both for his own father in fellowship but for his people that he would go obedient to the father, loving his people and giving his life for us. Lord, we are immensely thankful. Thank you for the sunshine today and the food we'll probably eat later on and the family and friends that are around us and even those that watch the live cast now can do that. God, these are all graces that you've given to us, but none of them are like the good grace and gift of Jesus Christ, our peace. We are no longer strangers and aliens, Lord. Rather, we are fellow citizens with the saints in the kingdom of God, members in the household of God, being built up, joined together into the temple of the living God. We thank you. I pray that you would make us obedient, loving participants in what you are doing that would follow you with all of our heart, soul, and mind. Thank you for being our treasure. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.